0: Matthew 24, 3, six through eight says, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you're not frightened for those things must take place. But that is not the end yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the birth pangs, the beginning of birth pangs. So here's, as we begin, uh, let's identify the popular view of this passage. Here are your blanks. These are the signs that will herald the return of Christ. Half a century ago, in 1970, Hal Lindsey wrote his famous book, The Late Great Planet Earth. In it, he highlighted these signs and said that they were increasingly pointing to Christ's return. Late Great, as it got called, was the number one selling nonfiction book in the world that year. And since that time, many have considered the catastrophes listed in Matthew 24 to cumulatively represent what's called the signs of the times. Many other authors and teachers have jumped on the bandwagon and ever since have used Matthew 24, 6 through 8 to conclude that the frequency and intensity of the birth pangs will increase at the end. And based upon this, many popular prophecy teachers have emphasized that the signs of the times that we're seeing in our generation are proof that the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation are imminent. In 2000, Lindsay doubled down on these concepts in his book Planet Earth 2000 AD. In this book he went to great length to contend that the signs of the times were increasingly dramatically compared to what had happened in history. And here were some of the signs that Lindsay wrote about in Planet Earth 2000 AD. Here are your blanks. First, number one, wars. Lindsay had a lengthy section telling of the increasing numbers and scope of wars throughout the 20th century. Number two, famine. The book presented evidence that was purported to show that famine was rapidly increasing at the turn of the century. Number three, pestilence. Lindsay used the HIV AIDS epidemic and data from other infectious outbreaks to make the case that pestilence was rapidly increasing in the world in our time. And number four, earthquakes. Earthquakes. The book contended that both the frequency and strength of earthquakes were rapidly increasing. So with such, as he said, undeniable fulfillment of prophecy going on, how could one possibly deny these signs of the times? Throughout both of Lindsay's books, written in 1970 and 2000, he relentlessly tells us three things. First, that the Bible teaches that the signs of the times will increase in frequency and intensity right before Christ's return. This is what his book taught. Second, that all of the signs are rapidly increasing our day. And third, therefore, Christ's return is imminent. He's right at the door. But there are good reasons to question the conclusions of this genre of books. And tonight, I'll present a contrary view. Four reasons why the popular, I use that in quotes, but it's pretty functionally true, accurate. Four reasons why the popular view of the signs of the times, that view is wrong. The first reason to question the common view of the signs of the times is because There are plenty of data that contradict what Lindsay and other uh, popular prophecy authors have presented in their books. So, here's the first reason to question the popular view of the signs of the times. Reason number one, here's your blanks. The increasing frequency and intensity of the signs of the times is actually in question. So let's start with wars. Are wars on the increase? One of the keys to understanding whether wars are increasing in our day compared to the past is to pay attention to how those presenting the data define a war or an armed conflict. Here are some examples, and you've got extensive uh, graphs tonight, Um, so you'll need to print those out. Even if you're on the podcast, it'll help if you go back and print them out. Um, So notice with me, here is the um, death in armed conflicts uh, worldwide. And notice, when you look at this, it looks like since 2003 that there's this impressive two-decade marked increase. Um, But one of the things that's really important to look at is that this includes casualties of 25 per year or more. So that's a really important aspect of interpreting what this particular one means. Because think about this this actually means that there's an enormous number of tribal conflicts that are very small in a global sense, but they're still being considered a war for the purpose of that graph. But now let's look at the global data when we use a more typical definition for war, meaning a large armed conflict with at least 50,000 combatants, pretty commonly used. Using the death rates compared to the world's population. So we have a sense of the impact on the world that it's having. Now, the first one shows the global death rates for the last 600 years, and the second shows the battle death rate uh, from the decades since World War, the 40s, World War II. And notice the global deaths since 1400, so this is basically six centuries, and as you can see, when you use kind of the classic concept of how many, uh, how many uh, combatants there are, 50,000 or more to call a war, if you look at the average and, and you can see there's the detail you can't see very well on this, um, but the fact that that's obscured doesn't hurt. Each of those dots is an, is an armed conflict and you can see that the, the rate of deaths globally um, has actually in the last century per population has somewhat uh, decreased. Um, and then if you look at the worldwide battle deaths, this bar graph, the very colorful bar graph, um, and this is per 100,000 people on the planet, and you can see if you want to drill down into some of it, the different kinds of wars that are going on, but notice the, the worldwide battle death rate has markedly decreased as you've looked, especially in the the second half of the, uh, since World War II. You have some times here that reveal the Korean War and the war in Vietnam, etc. but uh, as you can see. And again, this is uh, how it impacts the globe because the denominator is the number of humans that are living. And finally, uh, there's a graph uh, the last 500 years when you evaluate the wars between the world's great powers. So these would be considered big, big wars. And the percentage of the years that we're warring, uh, that they're warring with each other. So uh, there's some information in here that you can see about the the definition and some of the wars. And actually, I think there were uh, greater than 30 wars across time. But notice, the percentage of time, this is a running average, I think a 15-year running average, um, over the last basically half millennium that the great powers have been at war has actually consequentially Uh, been uh, reduced. Um, So given these data, I believe the following is a reasonable summary. And here's your blank. Write it in. While some might argue that the threat of global war is high, and certainly the nuclear war is a game changer potential, etc. But while some argue that the threat of global war is high, there's no persuasive evidence that either the intensity or frequency of war has been increasing in recent history. So how about famine? As with war, the world has experienced many devastating famines throughout history. For example, from 1810 to 1879, so that 69-year period, more than 100 million people died in the combined famines in China. And during the Irish potato famine in the mid-19th century, one in a, uh, excuse me, one million died in a single year in Ireland. And in 1959 through 1961, that three-year period, somewhere between 17 and 55 million people died of starvation in what has been termed the Great Chinese Famine. So let's look at the rate of people dying worldwide in the last half century from famine. And as you can see here, that here's the global famine uh, by decade since 1860. And you will notice that the rate of people dying globally as a percentage of the world population per decade, has been almost steadily, certainly recently, dramatically decreasing over time because of efficiency, uh, of of, um, the ability to move food around the globe, uh, etc. All all of those uh, types of things. So um, here's a reasonable summary. Here's your blank. While there's always the potential for widespread famine, there's no persuasive evidence that the severity or frequency of famine has been increasing in recent history. So how about pestilence? Many popular End Times teachers and authors contend that epidemic pestilence is rapidly increasing in recent years. And this is one of the uh, examples of the ramping up of the signs of the times. And they point out, and in fact, this was uh, consequential. Uh, some of these were consequential in Lindsay's second book, written in 2000. They point out the, the HIV, AIDS epidemic, Ebola, and most recently, uh, the latest authors, COVID-19, as further proof that the rapture must be right around the corner. But let's test this idea. Inner Notes is a chart that ranks the great epidemics by the percentage of the world's population that died in each of them. And notice, it's, this is right within your notes, look at the global percentage of those estimated to have died compared to the, uh, the entire population of the earth. And as you can see, the, the, the big plague, the so-called Black Death that occurred in Europe in the 14th century, wiped out a third of the world's population. So notice, none of the recent pandemics even make it on the 1% of the globe death list. The HIV-AIDS pandemic that began in 1981 has killed 0.5, a half a percent of the world's population, 43 million. So obviously it's gigantic, but again, in the scope of all of history, it's not even at 1%. The COVID-19 pandemic killed about 0.3% or 15 million. And Ebola has killed about 25,000 people since 1976, which is a very, very tiny, at 0.00003% of the world's population. It's a very, very, very high mortality rate. It's a horrible disease. Uh, but the, uh, fortunately, it did not become a global pandemic. And so while these epidemics are great tragedies and they've caused horrible loss of life and are important threats to public health. Their impact on the world is dwarfed by the great pandemics of the past. For example, I already kind of alluded to the 14th century Black Death, the so-called the plague. It killed a third of humanity globally and it wiped out half of the population of Europe. There are some regions in Europe that literally lost 90% of the population in a matter of a few years. So here's a reasonable summary. Here's your blank. While there's always the potential for new and deadly infectious diseases to emerge, there's no persuasive evidence that the severity or frequency of epidemics and pestilence have been increasing in recent history. And then finally, earthquakes, the number four of the focus uh, that came from Lindsay's books and many other books. In 2015, the US Geological Survey published their analysis of the number of earthquakes globally from 1970, which <laughs> coincidentally just happened to be uh, the year that Lindsay wrote The Late Great. Um, and that, 1972 uh, to 2012, so that n- nearly half century. And in it, they analyzed the yearly incidence of great earthquakes, meaning eight to 9.9 on the Richter scale, major earthquakes, seven to 7.9, strong earthquakes, so in the sixes, and moderate earthquakes in the fives. And they also then looked at the total of all earthquakes from moderate to greater, so five and above. And the data reveal no pattern in any of these categories or in the total combined earthquakes. The incidence and the severity of the earthquakes globally over the last half century is essentially random. And if you look at the 10 most powerful earthquakes in history there's also no evidence that they're happening more often across the last 600 years. And of course before the Richter scale around the turn of the 20th century these are estimated based upon damage and historical reports, but these are, are widely accepted. Uh, and, and notice, if you look at the dates, number one was in 60, 1960, but it's Chile. Um, uh, and, and as you can see there, you get all the way back to uh, 1604 uh, for the top 10. And there's really, again, no consequential pattern. Um, and so what about deaths from Uh, from uh, earthquakes globally, and I think this is uh, one of your last, or your last, and uh, I think it is your last. Uh, Notice, this is the annual worldwide earthquake deaths per million population on the planet. Again, so you're getting a feel for how much this impacts the world's population, and if you look at the black line through all of this, across the last century and a decade until 2010, as you can see, you really, follow, following the black line, which gives you essentially the, the mean or the median number of deaths occurring annually, you can see there's really no pattern. And uh, across the entire time, it's essentially flat with some variation. And so here's a reasonable summary. <laughs> You're getting used to this now, write it in. There's no persuasive evidence that earthquake frequency, severity, or mortality has been increasing in recent history. So the first reason to question the popular view of the signs of the times is because there's no persuasive evidence that wars, famine, pestilence, or earthquakes are increasing either in frequency, intensity, or mortality. And this leads us to a key concept. This is the end of this section. here's Here's your blanks. It's best to understand catastrophic events such as war, pestilence, famine, and earthquakes as here's your blank as perpetual signs of the final age rather than specific signs that will identify the time of Christ's return. It's been like this for millennia and there's no evidence in even the last century of a consequential, uh, and no persuasive evidence. You can It depends what you pick and choose and so forth. But uh, clearly, um, now we're ready for the second reason why the popular view of the signs of the times is wrong. Reason number two, here's your blanks. In church history, there have been many times when the church was absolutely convinced that the signs of the times proved that the Lord was returning immediately. Look what you just wrote in. In church history, there have been many times when the church was absolutely convinced that the signs of the times, so-called, proved that the Lord was returning immediately. Here's just a short list. I didn't even put these in your notes, but in uh, 200 AD, so the 3rd century, the great theologian Tertullian just was completely uh, focused, almost maniacal on this. In the 6th century, Pope Gregory made it basically uh, his, his entire papal effort was about it's, it's now, it's now, it's now. Uh, And in the 14th century, enormous numbers of theologians, preachers, church leaders, and lay believers were convinced that Christ was returning in their day. Can you imagine if you watched half of Europe die and approximately a third of the population of the earth die? How could you think this isn't it? It just was an incredibly focused time of believing that Jesus had to be coming back. And notice, since then, in every century, there have been waves of prophets, preachers, authors since the printing press, and date setters who have announced, this is it. Look what's happening. This is it. (laughs) And now the third reason why the popular view of the signs of the times is wrong. Reason number three, here's your blanks, the dramatic intensification of the birth pangs occurs during the seven-year tribulation, not before. It's amazing how many people have missed this. Ready? The dramatic intensification of the birth pangs occurs during the seven-year tribulation, not before. Look from Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, verse 8. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs, and now notice what begins. Then they will deliver you to tribulation. So here's where the tribulation, this last seven years, the Daniels 70th seven, uh, happens in, in uh, the Olivet discourse. And now watch the birth pangs really intensify. Look what happens during the tribulation, in the Olivet discourse and in Revelation chapter six through nine. Remember that grid that we did in 106 and 107 that helps you remember where what is happening in uh, Revelation. in chapter six is the peace treaty. In chapters 11 through 13 is the midpoint of the tribulation and the abomination of desolation. And in chapter 19 is the return of Christ. That is the seven-year tribulation uh, in uh, in the Revelation. Um, And so as, um, uh, as we go through these verses, notice the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecies from the Olivet Discourse as each fulfillment occurs during the tribulation in Revelation. So here's Jesus Talking about what's going to happen in the seven years of the tribulation and the great tribulation after the abomination of desolation. And then we're going to see what John, writing in around 97 AD, was talking about would happen in the future and where the fulfillment would occur in the revelation. So, number one, ready? Massive earthquakes. Here's Jesus' prophecy in verse seven. And in various places, there will be earthquakes. And here's going to be the fulfillment. Look from Revelation chapter 16. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as had there had not been seen since man came upon the earth. So great an earthquake it was, and so mighty. So notice you've also today, you've got your... Uh, um, your uh, grid there for the seven years. And notice chapter 16, this is the peace treaty in verse chapter six of Revelation. And this is the second coming of Christ, chapter 19 of Revelation. And in chapter 11 through 13 is the midpoint of the Revelation. We're just reading in chapter 16. So as you've gone into the great tribulation, the second half of the last seven years, we now see earthquakes as has have never been seen before. But notice where they're happening. They're not happening here so that it's the harbinger of the rapture and Christ's return and, and the peace treaty. They're happening well in to the final seven years. Here's your next blank. Number two, devastating famine. Devastating famine. Look at verse seven. And in various places there will be famines, Jesus' prophecy. And now look, John Uh, We see in the seal judgment of famine, uh, how he tells us that'll be fulfilled in Revelation 6. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come, and I looked and behold, a black horse and he who sat upon it had a pair of scales in his hand. And notice what the scales are for. And I heard something like a voice saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius. So think about that. You have to work an entire day. That's a denarius was typically a day's work. An entire day Just for a quart of wheat, hardly is that going to feed a family. And three quarts of barley for a denarius. And so notice, where's that happening? In chapter six, the peace treaty has begun, and you're already into the seven years of tribulation, and you see that the third seal judgment happens, and all of a sudden Uh, food is, is, is nearly impossible to get. It's incredibly expensive as described here. Number three, ready? Here's your blank. Overwhelming pestilence. Here's Jesus' prophecy from the Luke rendering of the Olivet Discourse. Then he continued, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be plagues. Okay? And now look at just one of the fulfillments from the fourth seal judgment in Revelation Chapter 6, when the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth li- four living creature saying, come, and I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, so this is a, a horse basically looks like it's in shock, dying, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name death, and authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with pestilence. Wow, a quarter of the earth, and where is that? Chapter six, the fourth seal judgment. So notice the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments happen in the first half. So notice the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments. So the fourth seal judgment, you literally see pestilence wipe out a quarter of the world's population. Again, not ramping up before all of this starts, but once the tribulation and the peace treaty have already have already happened. And then number four, unprecedented global war. There's your blank. Here's Jesus' prophecy from chapter 24, verse 6 and 7. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And here's the fulfillment in Revelation 6 and in Revelation 16. We'll give a couple here from Revelation. When he broke the second seal, so this is the seal judgments again, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and another, a red horse, went out, and him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth. Notice that. So the whole earth now is at war. And that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. And I saw coming out, now in chapter 16, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for war of the great day of God, the Almighty. So where are those happening? In the seal judgments, the second seal judgment, you see peace is taken away from the earth, and uh, there's a, a, a sword of the, the, uh, the death horse. And then over in chapter 16, during the bull judgments, uh, you see this uh, incredible uh, global war again. And so having gone through these uh, fulfillment of the signs, Let's now compare, and this is your other, uh, actually this will be right in your notes. This will be just directly in your notes there. Um, Notice, Um, here's the signs of the times, the popular view, which really, really got cranking in 1970 with the late great um, by Hal Lindsey. The popular view has been during the church age, You're going to have these massively increasing birth pangs. And all of these signs are going to happen so that as it ramps up, the idea is you'll be able to know when, if you're a pre-tribber, you'll be able to know when the rapture is going to occur. And you'll be able to predict that, oh my goodness, the last seven years must be starting because this has happened. But notice what we just went through from Matthew 24. We took Jesus' prophecy about what will happen at the end And then from Revelation, we showed where and when it happens. And what we saw was it's during the seven-year tribulation. So if the pre-tribbers are right, that's happening after the church has already been caught up with Christ, if the pre-tribbers are right. But in any case, it does not mean that the return of Christ, right, which happens at the end of the seven years to save Israel and the world and go into his millennial kingdom— It certainly does not tell you that the second coming is happening because the reality is what you see is the fulfillment of the prophecies occur during the times of the great judgments in uh, the book of Revelation between chapter 6 and chapter 19. So take a look at that if you want to and and you realize that the popular view, this curve, isn't what is taught (laughs) by the Olivet Discourse and Revelation, it's actually that it happens when you're in Daniel's 70th seven, the tribulation. And now we're ready for fourth, the fourth reason why the popular view of the signs of, times, uh, signs of the times is wrong. Reason number four, here we go. The Olivet Discourse doesn't teach about the actual biblical signs of the times at all. Let me go back and say that again because it's such a mind blower. Ready? The Olivet Discourse doesn't teach, Matthew 24 and Luke 21 doesn't teach about the actual biblical signs of the times at all. The popular teachers say these are the signs of the times, but we'll see that's not what the scripture calls the signs of the times. So let's look again at the famous beginning passage of the Olivet Discourse, some of the excerpts here in your notes. Notice, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these signs happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus, so there's the ask, what, what, will be the, what will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus answered, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes, but all of these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. So many students of scripture have felt that verses four through eight, what we just read are the answer to the question in verse three. Lord, what will be the sign of your coming? Okay, they've labeled these, the signs of the times, and they've taught that these signs will allow believers to know when the tribulation will begin and when Christ will return for his church. But in fact, Matthew 24 doesn't teach the signs of the times at all. We tend to be freewheeling with our use of biblical words and terms and phrases, but notice the biblical writers were meticulous with their use of words. Let me give an example. You're undoubtedly familiar with the incredible Isaiah 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Do you realize how meticulously Trinitarian and careful that is? For unto us a child is born. There was a point where the pre-existent son, which was, had, had always existed, became a human child. So, for unto us a child is born, but notice, the son wasn't born. The son is the eternal God, a part of the, th- the Godhead, and has come from eternity. So notice, a child is born, but unto us a son is given. The already eternally existent son was given, not born. So notice how careful the prophets and the authors of the text are about words. So now look very closely at the text, and let's identify, here's your blanks, the difference between the popular concept of this passage and what it actually says. Okay, we're going to compare these two things. Ready? Write it in. The signs, plural, the signs of the times versus the sign of the coming of Christ. Now, I want you to pay attention Matthew 4 through 28 is not the answer to the question in verse 3. Look with me again at the question. Ready? Verse 3, tell us when will these signs happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Notice something. Jesus doesn't answer their question immediately. He actually launches into a complex description of many aspects of eschatology. And in this section verses 4 through 28, he gives the preamble to his answer. Remember, the question is, what will be the sign of your coming? And here's the actual answer, but it doesn't happen, you ready, until verse 29. But look at this. Look what happens in 29 and 30. But immediately, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. You ready? Here comes the answer to the question in verse three. And then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man. There's the sign. They will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So, what flows directly out of this text? It's I've called it the sign fact, ready? Here's your blanks. The sign of the coming of the Son of Man will be his awesome appearance in the sky, in power and great glory. Oh my. It will be his awesome appearance in the sky in power and great glory. And this leads to a shock to the popular signs of the times teachers. The sign of the coming of the Son of Man will happen at the end of the tribulation, and it will be a one-time sign and not a series of increasingly frequent signs. Look at that. Here's a a shock to the popular signs of the times, teachers. The sign of the coming of the Son of Man will be at the end of the tribulation and will be a one-time sign, not a series of increasingly frequent signs. What will it be? Jesus appearing in the sky with power and great glory, the sign. And now we're ready for application. Here we go, here's your blanks. Every believer should be on a great mission to reveal the real signs of the times to a lost world. Every believer should be on a great mission to reveal the real signs of the times to a lost world. And now I want you to allow your mind to get rid of the signs of the times popular teaching and let this settle in. To set up our application, we need to take a big step back and ask a question. Isn't there a biblical concept of the signs of the times? Yes, there is. But shockingly, it has nothing to do with the last days. (laughs) You're thinking, say what? See, this has become so pervasive for more than a half a century now, it's like people, we can't even think this way. Look at Matthew chapter 16, which by the way, is the only place where anywhere in the Bible, the phrase signs of the times is ever used. Matthew 16, look at this. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, when it is evening, you shall say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? Look what's going on here in this text. Isn't this interesting? You ready? Here's the attributes of the signs of the times. The only time the word ever uses that phrase, ready? And it's by Jesus using the phrase. Uh, uh, And so notice number one, here's your blank. It was given in the context of the present, not the future. Jesus is saying, look around you. Do you not know the signs of the times? Number two, if, there's your first blank, if Jesus' words in Matthew 16 were meant to instruct 21st century Christians about the last days, right? If if the signs of the times were about the last days, if that's what this was about, notice, then the words meant nothing to the Pharisees and Sadducees to whom Jesus spoke. Just let that sink in for a minute. Jesus is speaking to them and saying, you know how to predict the weather, but do you not see the signs of the times right in front of your face? And he, of course, being himself, really the the key, and his uh, attesting miracles and so forth, his resurrections that he was doing all of this. Um, so if the if the if the signs of the times are about the 21st century for us, it meant nothing to to the people to whom Jesus spoke, and that, of course, is a an absurd way to view Scripture in general. That it meant nothing to them, and it only means something to us. And then. Number three, here's your blank. This passage has nothing to do with the second coming of Christ. Ready? The signs of the times passage in the Bible is in Matthew chapter 16. It's this story right here. It's not Matthew 24 or Luke 21. It's not during the Olivet Discourse. This is it. And so how can I say this with confidence? Confidence. Look at the context and how the paragraph ends here in chapter 16. Do you not know how to discern the appearance of the sky? Do you know how to appear the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. Look at that. What's the sign of Jonah three days and three nights in the depths of the earth. That's the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. It's the prophecy of the big fish pointing to the crucifixion and the resurrection after three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, right? Thursology 21 through 25. If you want to look at the Thursday crucifixion through the Sunday, the Sunday uh, resurrection. So, ready? What is the sign of Jonah? Write it in. It's a messianic prophecy that would allow the world to identify. Ready? <laughs> The first coming of Christ. Oh my, a messianic prophecy that would allow the world to identify the first coming of Christ, the sign of Jonah, the signs of the times. He was giving one of them, the sign of Jonah. And so this leads us to a big surprise. Here's your blanks. The biblical signs of the times are the 330 signs that identified... The, in the past, identified the Jewish Messiah so that it would be impossible to deny who he was when he came to save the world the first time. He's coming to save the world a second time, and especially Israel and all of those who refuse to, who have the testimony of Jesus, as the revelation says, and who refuse the mark of the beast. But look at, right, look, at this, look at the surprise again. The biblical signs of the times are the 330 signs that identified the Jewish Messiah so that it would be impossible to deny who he was when he came to save the world the first time. And this has profound implications for the church. Are you ready for another mind blower? It's a key concept. Here it is. The church's mission isn't to identify signs that point to a future coming but to point to the past signs that identify the Savior who has already come. Let me say that again. The church's mission isn't to identify signs that point to a future coming, but to point to the past signs that identify the Savior who has already come. Being ready for the second coming is about people having a relationship with the one who showed himself to be the Messiah, at his first coming. But you might be wondering why this is such a big deal. Well, it's a big deal because the world's greatest problem isn't that disbelievers, uh, unbelievers disbelieve the second coming of Christ. You ready? The real problem with the world is that they don't believe in Jesus' first coming. The world's great problem isn't their eschatology, if they have one, The world's great problem is that they've missed what Jesus did when he already came. And what does this mean for us? It means that while some of us are arguing about when the second coming will be, we're supposed to be showing the world that the real signs of the times are. And what are those? Well, can you point to the Messiah by showing how he perfectly fulfilled prophecy to prove that he was the savior? Do you know the signs? Do you know the signs? Do you know, I'm not talking about earthquakes and wars. I'm talking about the signs like the sign of Jonah. Do you know the amazing details of prophetic fulfillment that Jesus flawlessly accomplished? Born in Bethlehem, came out of Egypt, raised in Nazareth. Just think of that for a second. Just just let that soak in. The prophet said, where would he come from? Well, Bethlehem. Well, actually, he'd come from Egypt. Well, no, he'd come from Nazareth. It was impossible. Obviously, they were false prophets. At least two of the three were false prophets because he could only come from one place. Nope. Born in Bethlehem. Taken into Egypt because of the risk. Comes back out of Egypt. And then, guess what? He's raised in Nazareth because Archelaus, the son of Herod, was still looking to kill him. So instead of going back to Bethlehem, he goes back to Nazareth. Look at that. The signs of the times that prove that Jesus is who he says he is. Look at these. Rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Who does that? What king? 30 pieces of silver. Lots cast for his clothes. Given vinegar to drink. Crucified rather than stoned. Did an entire... Uh, 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 thursology on that in the past, on the miracle, the proof, because he ended up, he should have been stoned, and there he was, crucified, uh, pierced with a spear. In all of Roman history, no other evidence that anyone else was ever pierced through with a spear, only Jesus. How could that be? Prophesied. The unblemished Passover lamb who had no bones broken. Look at this. How could it be more impressive? Moses said, make sure the lambs are unblemished. Make sure, he specifically said, it doesn't have any broken bones in those four days of observation before you choose the Passover lamb. And look, you go to Golgotha and there's three men being crucified. The one on that side has broken bones. Because he was still breathing. They broke his bones so he would collapse and suffocate. The one on that side is has broken bones. But the one in the middle, the perfect Lamb of God, no broken bones. Folks, those are the signs of the times. So I ask you again. Have you armed yourself with the evidence of the signs that identify Jesus so that you're able to lead the world to Christ who has already come? So let me ask this as a question as we're getting near the end. It's a key and challenging question. I want you to put the blanks, uh, fill the blanks in so you have it. Can you open your Bible and lead the genuine seeker to the Savior? Can you open your Bible and lead the genuine seeker to the Savior? Did you know that we're surrounded by people who the Holy Spirit is drawing to himself and that they're genuinely seeking the truth? God is drawing all. If I be lifted up, I will draw all to myself. When he went up on the cross, the Holy Spirit's prevenient grace is drawing all of humanity to him. But many seekers need more than just a testimony of how Christ changed your life. Many of them have already tried a lot of things and found out they're a scam. Everybody has a testimony. This changed my life. This makeup changed my life. This food supplement changed my life. Everybody has a testimony. And and so many of them are looking for convincing evidence that your Savior meets the test, that your Savior is actually life-changing, and that your Savior can stand up under scrutiny and isn't just one more religious charlatan. In fact, I want us to look at what happens later in Matthew 16. Remember Matthew 16? This is the signs of the times chapter. The sign of Jonah and all the other messianic signs. Ready? Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But how could Peter know this for sure? Because God has done his job. He has given the world hundreds of unmistakable proofs that Jesus of Nazareth is Lord of all. That's right. God has done his job of proving Jesus to be the Christ. But now, but now, it's our turn. Notice what happens next in Matthew 16. Simon Peter answered, said this great confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. What was he saying? Not Peter, of course. Peter's not the foundation, Jesus is the foundation. So, what was he saying? It was upon the confession that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Based upon that confession, The signs of the times that show that he is the savior of the world who came in the past and you can show he's the savior. That is how God builds the church and why why Hades cannot overpower the church. So think about what all this means. If we'll do our part in leading people to Christ, God will take care of the future And so it's time for the church to teach the real, historical, biblical signs of the times and to stop being enamored by the future contrived signs of the times. Think about it this way. Publishing books on the signs of the times is a growth industry in modern American Christianity. Isn't it ironic that we have replaced the real signs of the times, that point to the historical Jesus. We've replaced them with the false signs of the times that have led to false hope, overdue dates of Christ's return, broken promises, frenzied crowds standing in white robes on mountaintops, and false prophets who have made millions of dollars on their now defunct books. It's no wonder this world thinks Jesus is a myth. Many believers have joined the soothsayers, the palm readers, and the people at the 1900 psychic numbers in trying to predict the future. And all the time, the Word has already told us that there's only one way to prepare people for the future it's to lead them to the foot of the cross so they'll testify with Peter You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son. The living God. And now, as we close, I want to highlight the greatest problem with the popular teaching of the signs of the times. Here's your blank it gives the impression that something has to happen before Jesus returns. Notice the popular. The problem with the popular teaching, it gives the impression that something has to happen before Jesus returns. Something like more famines, more earthquakes, more wars, or something like microchips under the skin, or the temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem, or something like the European Union having exactly 10 members to match the 10 nations that will be led by Antichrist. But all of this simply gets in the way of remembering the most clear and repeated of all second coming teachings, that Jesus can return at any moment. Here's the key concept that we end with. Look at this, write it in. Jesus' return isn't imminent because of the signs of the times. It's imminent because it has always been imminent and because not one thing needs to happen before he returns, and because every Christian generation has always lived in the last hour. Remember, John wrote it in the first century AD. My little children, it is the last hour. Look what you wrote. Jesus' return isn't imminent because of the signs of the times. It's imminent because it has always been imminent, and because not one thing needs to happen before he returns, and because every Christian generation has always lived in the last hour. And that's why the scripture repeatedly teaches the fundamental issue for us. In fact, it follows in the Olivet Discourse. Right after the passage that we studied tonight, look at verses 40 through 44 in Matthew 24. There will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. They're not recovering from <laughs> pestilence, earthquakes, wars. They're just at a regular old workday and notice this, boom. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Just let that soak in. If you don't think he's coming, if you don't think there's enough signs, if for whatever reason your mind has wandered away from being ready, look at that. When you don't think Jesus is coming is the most perfect time for Jesus to come. So here's the word of the Lord. Don't ever let your eschatology distract you from staying focused on the fundamental issue surrounding the return of Christ, be ready and bring as many as you can to Jesus who has already come as Savior of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may we have a burning desire to know how to reveal you to all of those around you and us who don't know you yet. Lord, it's important, so much of your scripture is about your return, about the last days, about the end times, so it's important. It has, by volume, it's the third most voluminous issue in the scripture, only after the nature of God and the plan of salvation to save the world. Next comes your return, eschatology, the end times. But Lord, may that never get in the way of us first walking with and knowing you, confident in our faith. And may we, as Peter said, may we be always prepared to give an account for the hope that lies within us. May we be diligent to be prepared to open your scripture, Lord, and show the world that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We love you, Lord.